If you're a regular listener to the Van City podcast and believe in what the church is doing, consider supporting Van City financially. Full disclosure, our church is small and in the throes of an ongoing struggle to make budget and to grow in the spiritual discipline of generosity. If you want to help out, visit vancity.church/give. I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part three in the series, James, Forgetting Your Own Face. James has harsh, even sarcastic words for the wealthy and their riches, which is a problem for those of us who, by a global standard anyway, are very rich. Once, there were two men invited on a spiritual retreat, 30 days to seek and be sought by God. Both of them came from the same humble place. They shared the same humble origins. They were the same age, same season of life, and neither of them had anything. They both arrived at the spiritual retreat empty-handed, for this was the rule. You can bring nothing with you, and you can take nothing when you leave. Both of them knew this when they arrived at the retreat center where one man was sent upstairs and the other down. The upstairs man opened the door to his 30-day accommodations and his eyes went wide with stupid wonder. The room was lavish. There was a sprawling buffet that lined one wall set with bright glistening fruit and sumptuous meats and steaming seasoned vegetables and decadent chocolate truffles frosted with powdered sugar or else drizzled with golden caramel. The bed was enormous, more room than one man could ever need. It was dressed in blankets that spilled from all sides like a satin waterfall. And he tested the mattress with his hand and found it supple, cloud-like, yielding to gentle pressure. There were cabinets piled high with games and storybooks. There was a window with a view, sprawling orchards and dew-dappled meadows where he beheld other attendees wandering the grounds. The walls were festooned with scarlet curtains embroidered with sparkling gold thread. The upstairs man could hardly believe his good fortune. The downstairs man descended a spiraling stone staircase into a cold, musty cellar. Mostly, it was what he was used to. It was a thin mat stuffed with loose straw on hard floorboards that could scarcely be described as a bed at all. Naked walls, a draft. It was nothing to see, really. At dawn, there was bread on a tin plate and tepid tap water. And then the bell rang to summon both men to the first time of prayer and meditation. The retreat had begun. But on the first of those 30 sunrises, the upstairs man slept in. He hadn't heard the bell at all. And when he finally rose, the day was half spent. He drank sweet coffee in bed where he nibbled pastries and syrup-dipped dates. The upstairs man concluded that with the morning time of prayer and reflection long past, he might as well expend the remaining hours his own way, maybe entertain himself with games and a leisurely stroll. The first day, he decided, was a time to recenter and prepare for the journey ahead. No rush. The downstairs man, however, was hungry when the cold morning stirred him. So he ate quietly, wondering at the meaning of this place. With nothing to occupy his wandering mind, the downstairs man left his room before the first bell rang 
And it was in the quiet of morning that he first heard God speak to him in that place. At dusk, the downstairs man was hungry, so he savored his bowl of soup. It was a peasant dish stirred by a deep sense of gratitude for the God who provided the vegetables that became the broth, the grain that became the rice, the water that filled his glass and sustained his life, the God who spoke to him that morning. The upstairs man had seen the downstairs man from his window, and he seemed pensive, lost in thought, clutching himself against a breeze. And for a moment, the upstairs man thought of the many blankets and robes on his bed and in his wardrobe, but he reasoned that the downstairs man was probably fine, having known these conditions all his life. And was it the downstairs man's responsibility to have someone take care of him? Was it the upstairs man? responsibility to resolve every shivering guest on the grounds? Of course not. So he drew the curtains and he drifted to sleep. The next night, the downstairs man enjoyed the evening time of worship. And so did the upstairs man. He sang and he celebrated and he socialized, but the mind of the upstairs man drifted. He wandered about dinner, though he wasn't particularly famished. So he returned to his room. The upstairs man decided that the time that he'd spent worshiping that night was prayer enough, and so he played a few games before enjoying a late-night bowl of strawberry ice cream. The downstairs man, however, was lonely, so he prayed, and he was hungry, so he asked God for food, and he was cold, so he asked God for warmth. And again, in all those things, he heard God speak. The days became weeks, And the ending both men always knew awaited them finally came. On the morning of the final day, servants suddenly flooded the upstairs man room. They tore down the scarlet curtains and shuttered the scenic view. They emptied the fruit bowls and scraped the sumptuous platters into garbage sacks. They stripped the cabinets bare of its pageantry and twinkling gadgets. And finally, they peeled the silk linens from the bed where the upstairs man sat horrified, clutching himself, shivering. And he pleaded with them in spite of himself, begging that they leave him some breakfast, just one blanket, and couldn't he have one more game? But when the downstairs man rose before dawn, his meager dwellings had become for him a kind of temple to house the very presence of God. For it was God who brought each meal to sustain him. God who gave warmth, God who spoke in the lonely darkness. As it was before he came, he had nothing, but he had discovered God in this place and was convinced in that dark basement that really he had everything and more. I lack nothing, he had been praying day after day. He was saying it as he left, God speaking in his heart. But above him, The upstairs man was weeping and wailing, his anguish reverberating down the spiraling stone steps so that their woe reached even the downstairs man who could hear his old friend crying out again and again, terrified, but I will have nothing. What does it mean to be poor? The Bible depicts God with unique concern for the poor. You hear it all the time, God is on the side of the poor. Not that he loves them more or cares for the rich with any less sincerity, but God understands the imbalance of wealth and poverty as a violation 
of something called justice, a, a tipping of scales that makes shalom impossible. Shalom, a Hebrew concept that can be translated as peace, but it means much more. Dr. Gary Bashir has defined shalom as a community where all relationships, God, others, self, and the whole of creation are well-ordered, flourishing according to God's design. When some people have much and others have little and nothing is done to bridge that gap, there can be no shalom. Many years ago, my mom told me a story from her childhood, a a deeply traumatic era, mostly shrouded in secrecy. My mom told me that when she was younger, she was very poor, and she remembered standing in front of her home with her mom, who pointed to their ramshackle house and said, this is all you will ever be, poor. Well, what does it mean to be poor? Open your Bibles to the letter that we call James. The author of James, whose name is actually Iacobos or Jacob, it's a whole thing. Go back and listen to the first podcast. He grew up very poor, and he grew up being oppressed and abused by the rich and powerful, and he grew up steeped in the Hebrew scriptures. He saw wealth as corruption, and he beheld wealth used for justice. There were those with much who acted as patrons and benefactors for the poor and who were thus honored by the community for their sacrifice and generosity. So Jacob's disdain for the idolatry of wealth permeates his letter. And the first, but to be honest with you, not the most intense shades of it appear here in chapter one. So let's stand together as a gesture of respect as we read chapter one, beginning with verse nine. Jacob writes, believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation. They will pass away like a wild flower, for the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. These words are inspired by God. Go ahead and take a seat. On this passage, uh, scholar N.T. Wright says this, what James is saying is that we must learn to trust God and his word rather than the snares of the world. He has two kinds of snares in mind, the snare of wealth and the snare of actual temptation. He is warning that these powerful impulses are deeply deceptive. They are like wonderful wild flowers which spring up in the open country, here today, gone tomorrow, or even sooner if the sun is hot. Without this warning, we will look at the glorious wildflowers and think they are what matters. We will see people becoming rich and famous with fine houses, big cars, luxurious holidays. James has sharp, even sarcastic words to say about it. When you're poor, you should celebrate because that is actually the height to which you should aspire. When you find your rich, celebrate the fact that you're being humbled because it will all be swept away. This is David Foster Wallace. Now, like it or not, he is one of the most noteworthy figures in modern American literature. Now, David Foster Wallace doesn't need someone like me to like his books, and it's a good thing because I don't. Um, 
His baffling slog of a magnum opus is called Infinite Jest, and it's often lauded as one of the great English language novels of all time. To me, it feels more like, you know, literature's best example of the emperor's new clothes. David Foster Wallace has achieved the kind of notoriety in which he's constantly cited and quoted by legions of quasi-fans who never actually made it through Infinite Jest. If they did, man, my heart goes out to you. But they like the idea of it, anyway. And unlike many tragic, overlooked artists, David Foster Wallace was appreciated in his own time. Innumerable rave reviews, awards, honors that never seemed to satisfy his insecurities. Now, at some point, he had befriended Jonathan Franzen, who's another celebrated novelist who, if you ask me anyway, did actually write incredible novels, did and does write incredible novels, unlike David Foster Wallace. But even so, Jonathan Franzen could not manage to convince Wallace of Wallace's accomplishments. When David Foster Wallace received the MacArthur Genius Award in 1997, Jonathan Franzen said, I don't think it did him any favors. It conferred the mantle of genius on him, which he had, of course, craved and sought and thought was his due, but I think he felt, now I have to be even smarter. And some of you, I'm sure, know the story. After years of struggling with depression, with countless achievements behind him, unfinished manuscript before him that would eventually be nominated for a Pulitzer Prize, Wallace tragically hanged himself in 2008. The promise of more always underdelivers. It's a dead end. Nowheresville, USA. And it's why Jesus warned in his parable of the four soils, if you know the story, that in his words, the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth and the desires for other things come along and they choke the word of God and they make it unfruitful. And we behave as though this is something we simply cannot comprehend. We baffle at the Kurt Cobains and David Foster Wallace's of the world with all the success and recognition one can imagine and yet willfully put themselves on the receiving end of a shotgun blast or hanging from a rafter in their house. The proverbial Anthony Bourdain, who was paid millions of dollars to be famous by traveling the world, eating delicious food with interesting people. And he, Anthony Bourdain, hanged himself in a luxury suite in France without a trace of judgment-impairing narcotics in his system. I know we sit back in disbelief, shaking our heads, and we ask, how could this be? We say, were it me, if I had all those things, then I would be happy. And we turn a willful blind eye to every miserable rich person and certifiably insane celebrity because surely, surely it can't be that fame and celebrity and wealth are themselves empty. But they are. Wealth, fame, status, power, they all perish like a wildflower burned up by the sun. Jacob, the author of James, didn't make this whole perishing wildflower thing up. He got it from his brother, Jesus, who in his great manifesto that we call the Sermon on the Mount, talked at length about money, saying, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also." 
In that same sermon, Jesus goes on to say, see how the flowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin. And yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his glory was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown in the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? Jesus actually talked about money all the time. In fact, one out of every four teachings from Jesus of Nazareth was on money. What if a quarter of all my teachings were about money once a month? Money, like it or not, is wholly inseparable from your discipleship to Jesus. And the author of James takes it very seriously. Comfort, security, money, what Jesus called treasures on earth. Treasures are, in essence, the things that we keep because of the value we assign them. To have treasure is part and parcel of the human condition. Every, uh, or even small children who cannot fathom wealth or the very poor who have none know what it means to treasure something. You know, alone on an island for five years, even Tom Hanks had Wilson. So treasure, you like that one? Treasure, not so much with all the David Foster Wallace insults, but Tom Hanks, we can all come together around Castaway. Treasure on earth is the tangible and intangible stuff to which we assign value, but is, by its very nature, finite or perishable. Money, obviously, possessions, relationships, your reputation, your career. Even every Instagram and TikTok account will eventually go the way of MySpace and Friendster and LiveJournal and Zanga and on down the list. In fact, this is a true story. Earlier this summer, we took our kids to Disneyland and, and realized in the process that it was a grad night was happening while we were there. So there were just high school seniors clogging up everything that you can imagine. And I was waiting on some ride with my son Beck and my daughter Isla, and the three of us were kind of talking while in front of us, a group of Gen Zers were all taking nonstop selfie videos. And I was kind of, you know, watching, soaking it in, people watching shamelessly. And one of them I heard say to another in a blatantly sarcastic tone, you're going to post that on Instagram as if this were the most hilariously lame suggestion in the whole world. And this other kid, she couldn't even go along with the joke. She answered, yeah, maybe my mom would. So that's already over, doomed. <laughs> All of it's going to go. Jesus said that our treasure on earth would be destroyed. That was the language that he used. The Greek word is aphanazizo, and more literally, it means to make something disappear or vanish. This is about more than just the damage done to your stuff, your money, your wealth. Your treasure on earth will be no more. And the author of James wants the poor to rejoice in their poverty and the rich to rejoice in that the end of their treasure will be their humbling, which is a good thing. Jesus said, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, which is a confusing word for us. Again, N.T. Wright puts it like this. As with other references to heaven and earth, we shouldn't imagine that Jesus means, don't worry about this life, get ready for the next one. Heaven here is where God is right now, and where if you learn to love and serve God right now, you will have treasure in the present, not just in the future. 
So Jesus is not referencing a system of reward in which his disciples are to forego the idolatry of money and possessions so that when they die and they float up into the clouds, they'll finally get something even better. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, the word heaven often acts as a surrogate for the word God. Jesus is talking about treasure in God, an eternal investment in the things of God right now over and against investment in finite comforts and security and having more stuff. Your treasure on earth is doomed, but your treasure in God is not. Jesus' teaching, the one that inspired James' writing, concludes with one of the more famous quotations of Jesus, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, there's actually a number of ways to render these words or translate those words very plainly. One such way is the way you spend your money reveals what is most important to you. Or, if you'd like to know the true character of a person, look at their bank statement. It is so striking to me because Jesus is pitting Two dispositions, one against the other, as if only one can survive. The assignment of deep, meaningful value on money and stuff against the valuing of God. And he does this, I would argue, intentionally because the two cannot coexist. There are things that you believe matter to you. Things that, when asked, you would describe as your values, your passions, your loves, But maybe the most accurate way to the truth would be by posing the simple yet terrifying question, how did you spend your money this month? Now, depending on the study consulted, somewhere over one billion people in the world live on less than $1 per day, and about three billion live on less than $2 per day. Now, some statistics suggest that as much as 20% of Americans live below what we call the national poverty line. So with these facts in your mind, consider for a moment your stuff. Consider for a moment the fact that even in a room of this size, it stands to reason that the vast majority of us spend more than $7 every week, much more. Most of you arrived here in a car Some of you own more than one car, I do. Most of you have somewhere to live, again, I do. And you have possessions inside your home. You have laptops and smartphones and books and movies and televisions and streaming subscriptions and you eat at restaurants with some regularity and you choose from an endless parade of coffee options served at an endless parade of coffee shops with near identical decorative aesthetics. And you had breakfast and lunch today, you had snacks, you have many outfits and accessories. You have furniture and appliances. And sure, many, if not most of you, have known some level of financial adversity in your life. You've endured challenging seasons and faced debt or pinched pennies. And these are, of course, very valid hardships. I realize that in terms of getting by, not all of us have had it easy. I don't mean to discredit or undermine that in any way. But my point is that there's a difference between us and the rest of the world. When most of us talk about being poor, we only mean that we have little in a context that is outrageously wealthy compared to most human beings on earth. And that's my point. It's an important one. Compared to a huge swath of the world population, most of us are rich. I think a common American tendency is to immediately dismiss ourselves from the discussion around wealth and affluence 
because the single person or the young family or the college student surviving on ramen, they think of themselves as poor, though their lifestyle would be considered luxurious to most of the world. And then the upper class, they observe the wealthier super rich and they think, well, I'm not that wealthy. They are. And then the middle class observes the upper class and they think of themselves as poor and on down the economic ladder. At the very least, whoever is rich, we think it sure as heck isn't us. And yet, if you eat food and drive a car and live in a home, frequent restaurants, decorate your house, enjoy basic creature comforts, or even just one or two of those things, then you are rich by a global standard. Most of us are rich. James was not. Neither was his brother. Like several billion modern residents of earth, Jesus is depicted in the Gospels as having almost nothing. So, what the heck are we supposed to do? Most of us are grown people with grown people responsibilities and problems, and rich by global standards or not, we have responsibilities, and heck, we have desires that require finances. But James writes to the poor and to the rich. So please listen. He does not suggest that the rich must become poor. He simply assumes that they will. One way or another, eventually. You show up with nothing and you will leave with nothing. So it's our understanding of our money and our things, our relationship with it that has to change. Interestingly, there is a living tradition within the modern church that understands financial prosperity as a sign of God's blessing and favor. That's hardly new. In fact, Jesus himself was among contemporary rabbis who translated certain passages of the Torah to promise financial gain to obedient children of God. And this is, I think, worth mentioning. Jesus was aware that there were those who believed God wanted his people to be rich. Jesus knew this. James knew this. And James, like Jesus, he grew up steeped in the Torah and he experienced poverty. This was the Hebrew wisdom of his upbringing and his experience and his life. Do not wear yourself out to get rich. Do not trust your own cleverness. Cast but a glance at riches and they're gone for they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. One of the more hilarious word pictures in Proverbs. It's not just the inherent dangers of wealth that give way to idolatry and the inevitable destruction of treasure that you can't take it with you. It's the way that wealth tends to choke justice. In God's economy, those with much are to care for those with little. James grew up not only poor, but he grew up with a widowed mother. And observing all this, looking out on a landscape of affluent Christians that admittedly included himself, scholar Scott McKnight simply said this, the irony of wealthy followers of Jesus cannot be ignored. So what do we do? James says to the poor, rejoice in your high position, you're already there. To the rich, In his words, rejoice in your humiliation. Yikes. How? Look, part of this is sort of uh, easy for you to say, Josh, territory. In one sense, we're all in the same boat. We're Americans. Compared to most of the world, even the poorest among us is rich. So that's equalizing. 
But in another sense, I spent, you know, my early adult life surviving off $5 a day and living in a van. And then for the last decade of church work, I've maintained low enough income to qualify for government assistance the whole time. Meaning my own professional decisions and my circumstances have put me in such a position that I have to get creative so that we can pay bills and get groceries. And then, I don't know if you guys know this, but if you have children, they just sort of inhale resources and food. And you're like, oh, I didn't know this was part of it. So as of late, this is becoming more and more challenging. And as they age, they, you know, it's like Kirby, just more and more. It's getting harder. It's not impossible, but it's hard. The other night, my wife, she was, you know, on her routine on, on the internet, uh, scouring secondhand clothes shops. That's how we get clothes for our kids. And she said, man, it sure would be nice to not have to scour secondhand stores and websites for kids' clothes just to get the bare essentials. They also grow all the time, which is a weird thing. And I thought, yeah, that would be nice. And as I sat there watching her do this hard work, it occurred to me that the last eight years, uh, you know, parenting, being forced to do that, has made the simple luxury of just buying whatever we want whenever we, whenever we want, something of an impossibility with which we don't have to wrestle because we just can't do that. It's sort of like someone with no internet access or no smartphone or no laptop. It's not that the internet itself and smartphones themselves and computers are all inherently evil per se, but if you just don't have them, then you don't have to deal with all the terrifying, addictive, destructive potential. It's a moot point. And I am by no means poor according to that global standard But when simplicity is the only option, simplicity is pretty easy. So Jacob says to the poor, rejoice. You have got an advantage that the wealthy will never know. It's arriving at the spiritual retreat with nothing, having nothing when you're there, and leaving with nothing afterward. Nothing will be pried from your desperate grasp because your hands are open, hungry, expectant, waiting for God for every little thing. Greg Boyd put it this way. Jesus tells us that unless we give up all our possessions, we cannot be disciples of his. I don't interpret this to mean that we can't legally own anything since most of the disciples he was speaking to continued to earn money and live in houses. But it does mean that we can't consider anything we legally own or any money we legally earn to be our possessions. They belong to God. And as such, we are called to seek his will as to how our wealth should be spent. So we've got a problem. One theologian argues that to be rich and a disciple of Jesus is to have a problem. Christians, particularly in capitalist social orders, are told that it is not wealth or power that's the problem, but rather we must be good stewards of our wealth and power. However, Jesus is very clear. Wealth is a problem. Scottish philosopher Alistair McIntyre observed that riches are, from a biblical point of view, an affliction, an almost insuperable obstacle in entering the kingdom of God. Wealth is not unlike the internet or sex or wine, not inherently wrong in and of itself, but it is powerful and dangerous, and its destructive potential can hardly be overstated. So I believe that there is a strange paradox to which the disciple of Jesus must aspire, to live as though one has nothing, even if they have much, to keep the things you own from owning you, 
you have to let go. Because the more you own, the harder it can be to free yourself from it. Not impossible, but very difficult. Because we think, well, sure, it's easy to be generous when you have it all. So when I get just a little bit more, I'll start being generous. But let me propose to you an ironclad test of how you would handle money if you had more than you have right now. If you are not generous with little, you will not be generous with much. Whatever your season of financial stability or lack thereof, if you do not live in such a way that your money and your possessions are not yours, you will not live that way if you have more of it. In all likelihood, you will exemplify less generosity the more you acquire. The key is letting go. Thus, the great tension of having and giving. Again, this from Greg Boyd. Kingdom economics is this. Receive blessings without any guilt and share blessings without any reservations. I'll be honest with you guys, James is going to have more to say about wealth before we're done. In fact, it gets crazier than this. But for now, ask yourself this, what does it mean to let go? I'm not necessarily talking about divesting every cent that you own, but to live with such radical generosity that you are open-handed, freely giving and freely receiving with no reservations, completely content, completely secure in God and in yourself. It's not wrong to earn money or to have money, but disciples of Jesus are called radically against the often overwhelming current of materialism and greed and the uphill battle towards self-sacrificial generosity with the things that we own, our resources, our finances, our money, and our stuff. So what do our fears about giving or our reluctance towards sharing reveal about our hearts? Why do we hesitate to share what we have? Why is it our first reflex to hoard resources rather than redistribute them? What are we afraid of? Why does it not occur to us to donate to justice causes? Why would we not pick up the tab at dinner? Why have we yet to take up the discipline of consistent sacrificial giving to the church? Why are we not burdened to offset injustice with our money and our resources? Do we not think that we'll have enough? Won't we? When the retreat ends and they come to strip the room bare, will we be left to say, I lack nothing or I have nothing? Let's pray and ask God's spirit to come and speak, guide and direct us as we grow in maturity and faithfulness to him. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.